starting to to building a relationship and talking for the first times um it's also about the chemistry so i really like the example that yuri gave with the organism made up of these individual cells i think with teams it's pretty the same right you have to see that functional teams can be individually made up very differently and can also be very distinctive from each other like really well-functioning teams and you have to develop a sense of this for this chemistry and really be ready also to get uh, somehow emotionally uh, psychologically involved and this is also why we feel it's very necessary to for example meet teams uh, physically so you get this kind of chemistry Hello, everyone. This is Bruce at Deus Ex Dao, and I'm joined by my co-host Aperture. Hey, Abe. Hey, hello. Excellent. So today we have two really exciting guests uh, from Signature Ventures. We have Yuri and Julianne, uh, who we recently met at ECC in person, um, and uh, they lived up to all our expectations and more. And we're excited to get together to talk about their funds, their investment strategy, and learn more about their views on blockchain. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having us. Hey, Bruce. Hey, Abe. Okay, well, let's kick it off then, because I think what's, what's important is where you're coming from and what led you to uh, be active with Signature Ventures. So... Maybe let's start with you, Julianne. Uh, what is your background and how has this shaped your perspective on, on fundraising and on startups? Sure. Um, I think like uh, from the background, this is uh, probably typical and atypical at the same time. I've originally um, studied law and officially also started as a lawyer, um, became a professional investor so very shortly after I had uh, my bar exam, because I figured out that it, for me, it was way more interesting to build stuff than to deal with uh, potential and actual issues all day. And I say like typically somehow because um, the job, actually the job in venture capital in, naturally involves a lot of deal making and a lot of like legal interaction. Atypically, for sure, because um, starting like a tech VC on your own is probably not the, the first idea would, you would get if you hear that somebody um, has a legal background. Uh, for me, even though that came together naturally, um, because I did take this detour being a professional investor also before starting Signature Ventures. And... What about you, Yuri? Um, what, what's your background and how is it helping you currently with Signature Ventures? Um, so I think my background is uh, rather not helpful at all with Signature Ventures, but 
I, I, I typed it, or I, I think it squeezed it in into this. Um, I'm a statistician, so I love numbers, I love the data. And I studied that, I think, throughout the whole university. I did my PhD even also using statistician, uh, statistical methods. And what I actually loved a lot about the whole space before is really how we're developing into a very digital computational world. So usually people who do things like me, they go on and found I find a company. They don't necessarily go into VC. What really motivated me to go in there anyway is that when I did my PhD, I found many, many different parallels in how you actually think about building something, a company. And I just so happened that it became kind of an interest of me to invest usually through blockchain in the beginning, like 2017, the ICO times and so on. You just have an interest in investing a little bit. You, you feel the results, the negative and the positive ones, and you kind of uh, develop it and you feel well. You can actually use all the knowledge you use in the, uh, if you're using the PhD, not necessarily a specific one, but the ones, the abstract one, how you actually did the PhD itself, and apply that to the investments uh, space, but also the building space. Because I think we are trying to be a little bit closer to the builders, a little bit more builders ourselves. And so I think this is something that has shaped it a lot. Yeah, and I, I agree. Like some people, uh, actually forget that a, a university study or like a academic background really helps in structuring or research or understanding data because you're quite used to that, but also that you have a hypothesis and you actually want to falsify that in, in some moments. And it, it makes you a much a sharper investor or like for some traders, that's also useful um, where you can just apply that skill even if it's not your initial topic where you apply that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the, of the interesting pieces of the PhD itself, uh, although many people talk about uh, that sometimes in a, in a bad way, like it was like a really tough time and uh, it was a lot of stress and so on. The one thing that was really cool about the PhD is that my, my professor told, taught me that you have to really define the problem before you can solve it. And that's something that takes a lot of iteration. And this kind of understanding of defining the problem in such a way that the solution becomes clear once you have it really precise and taking iterations to do that, that's something I think that uh, it's, it's useful obviously in the company building, but it's useful across the board if you also manage the companies and try to help them strategically and otherwise. So how did you guys come from these different backgrounds and I guess meet each other and also decide to do venture because it seems like you both came to that conclusion, maybe independently, maybe collectively. Uh, could you unpack that? Yeah, so for me, it started uh, a bit earlier because I was like um, uh, a lawyer, a full-fetched lawyer um, after my bar exam and or bar admission. And um, it was very quickly clear to me that I didn't want to spent my f entire professional life in the job as it was profiled back then. Um, as I said, like it was a lot about dealing with issues and potential issues. And I uh, was always more attracted to the builder side and to innovation and uh, particularly tech innovation. So um, that was a natural interest that followed me um, my entire life. And then um, I 
started to consult venture capital deals pretty early on during my legal studies already. And also um, being a lawyer, I basically dealt a lot with PE deals and venture capital deals and a transactions. So I was already familiar with the deal-making. And as I also, um, in parallel during my studies, started to work with startups, um, at one point, um, a founder of a bigger company that was sold to a big corporate came to me and asked me, hey, do you want to run and head our venture capital department? I was, yeah, that sounds exactly right. So let's do that. And that's basically how I became a professional investor. And that was already in uh, 2014, around about 2014, that I started like full time um, in uh, the venture capital area. So what uh, I figured out was basically that the setup is very decisive because I went through different setups in the years thereafter and also worked with different setups. And it was like a little later in probably early 2018 when I had um, discovered the potential of blockchain back then for myself uh, after following Bitcoin for a couple of years that I just had this epiphany that I needed to start a venture fund in the area um, because I saw that the existing structures were not uh, perfectly suited to work with the founder profile in that field and also not really ready and not, um, I would say, motivated to fully grasp this potential socioeconomic change. And um, then I made like, I resigned from my job back then and basically fully uh, pivoted into the field of um, decentralization um, slash distributed ledger technology. And that's how I got to meet Yuri as well. So our initial conversations were basically based on me pivoting in the field, Yuri already being in the field. And then kind of five years ago, um, we evolved those thoughts together and then started off in 2019. Great. So Yuri, um, what, what was uh, your method of coming to this conclusion that um, this was both an interesting space to invest in, but then also that you wanted to be involved on the investment side instead of perhaps doing what many PhDs have done, which is join a team in a research capacity? Yeah, I think there, there might be two points to that. The one is uh, I don't have a traditional or like the traditional background in a way that you finalize, you, you finalize your studies and you go work for a company. I never had a career in mind as well. I just basically jumped from person to person that I find cool, right? I just went, I didn't want to do PhD either. Um, I actually wanted to make money after my master's. So I went on to find a job, but my professor was just cooler than the guys who I talked to at the different companies. So I just said, oh, okay, I just do the PhD then. So it's just really kind of finding those people you want to work with and then you just work with them, right? Just about the person. And I think, I think this is, this is something that just, this is, has been always like that to me. And it's just, this is the, I don't know, maybe this is the final chapter of that, the pretty long one. I hope so. Maybe this is just a one in between. Who knows? Right. But this is something of a essential one. Um, the second part probably is that while I was doing a PhD, we have a cafeteria downstairs from a laboratory. And my colleagues always used to say, well, when we go for lunch, Yuri explains the world. 
Is that like, because I, I just read something the day before. I was like, guys, did you know that? And this happened and it's so cool. And then just make some predictions and do this all over the place um, and some comments. And they call it like Lurie explains the world. And I think I always had this tendency to not be a super specialist. So I was good at my research, but I never want to go too deeply far because it was a little bit too much. I want to be broader, more general. I think that's kind of an, an issue that I, I took with me. And at some point, I just met Julianne. I didn't know about VC. I didn't, didn't think I would go in VC. I just met Julianne and I knew I had some fun with investing, let's say, in tokens. I knew I was terrible at trading. And that's kind of evolved in this idea of like, okay, well, she seems nice, right? Let's let's join her and do that. Do TVC. So probably also to add to that, what I admire about us working together, and I think that hooked me so much also with um Yuri back then and the and the conversations just stuck with me is that we're kind of I would say two generalists from different worlds and we have like this huge um, overlap in the way we work and kind of what we um, what we seem or what we deem quality as well. Um, I would say we have a pretty decent no bullshit approach. So we are also loving to bump over our heads over topics because we're like, argumenting you know back and forth and finding like all the details that also um add to the matter and are both very opinionated but complementary and i think that's the essence like i really feel that the exchange between our two complementary worlds just um is more than two if you add one plus one you know it should always be more than two at some point um if you are working uh in in a team so that was a very strong feeling that i got when we started to work together and that is what i still appreciate um yeah incredibly today when we work together great you've got the chemistry <laughs> yeah yeah in all directions i could tell you <laughs> it's really it's really a lot of um I would say this is a very uh, nice way also in a team to keep up, you know, a positive way of um, tension on matters. Like you can never stop to really um, talk out stuff. And I love this, like uh, somebody explains the world, somebody has read some something, brings curiosity to the table. So it's just um, admirable if somebody adds like their own thoughts uh, to the team. And uh, that keeps like every day so exciting and also intense in a positive way. Yeah, I think maybe to add to that, it's really also, we don't pile up problems, right? Whenever we have one, we solve it directly. And that's something that keeps the process and then just the rough running the fund and doing everything very, in a way, simple, right? Because there is always a platform of how you solve that. There is a, a mutual respect and uh, for the person and the arguments and the understanding on, on, on uh, what you listen to the person, right? And you actually want to resolve it directly. So you don't want to pile up stuff that comes up in five years or so. And then you find out that you actually want completely different things. It's a, it's a great synergy to have, especially when people are 
internally motivated, but also know that if they bring their opinion to the table, it, it gets respected. And actually, it's probably what you like, like an original opinion. So you can bring your own opinion further on a topic or discuss new ideas. Um, I think we have a fairly good idea for the timeline uh, that happened before Signature Ventures. Um, but maybe we should talk a little bit about your basically your elevator pitch here. Like what is Signature Ventures and how do these ideas manifest themselves in the work you do there? So I'm, I'm terrible at elevator pitching, so I'm trying to make it short, but I, I think that will be a little bit longer though still. Because uh, we're coming from this fundamental understanding, right? So we, we're doing this whole investment in the blockchain space, not because blockchain is so important necessarily. It is a stepping stone, right? It's a step towards something bigger. And what is the bigger piece is what we're driving for. Um, I'm coming from the data, as I already said. And what I'm interested in really much is how information flows. And to me, this whole space starting in like the beginning of the 20th century with the invention of the computer and so on, the coming internet, it's all just one like big movement towards uh, a way of building building something bigger, right? Building something way more interconnected, which the internet, I think, already uh, hints on, where people and, and machines and everything is more interconnected, and you have a almost like a almost like a more natural, organic world of that, right? More me less mechanical, uh, as it's kind of where the big factory is standing around, but more with the whole digital processes, which are neatly coming into this uh, this behavior of a human being, and and this whole information flow is what, what's really interesting to me. And if you look at the world where it's developing towards, then you would think uh, that it's becoming more and more interconnected. The density of the connection, density of the information becomes bigger and bigger. And you need something there to an, another piece to add to that. Because if something becomes very densely connected and densely in, uh, with dense information, it becomes like almost like one thing. Right? When you think about, this is something I learned from my uh, PhD from the biology side, is... When you think about your organs or your cells and all they work, right? They're all made up of smaller pieces that are very, very tightly interconnected. So you become just one big thing. And so if you have this, if you are actually having those ecosystem and communities and groups or subgroups and so on, um, there is a need for a different technology to be more transparent, more verifiable, but also respectful of the person if it's made of a person to be more privacy related and so on around the person itself. So what people say user centric, maybe it's more human centric that we need. But something like that, uh, you don't want to leave it to the black box AI uh, system to evolve in such capacity. It's just one big thing where you don't understand anymore what's happening, but you're living in it. Right? And I think this is like where is the starting point we had uh, when coming to the to the blockchain space on our own, and then we're discussing about okay, should we do the VC in that space? This was a clear yes because this is something fundamentally new that is not about only tech but also about the socioeconomic uh, challenges and to solve them potentially through tech, but not, not, not only. Right? That's why you have so much happening in the blockchain space. I think this is kind of the starting point to all of that. Um, of course, if you have like more specific, let's say, investment buckets where we say we invest in those kind of categories because we have a, a fund of 10 years, but this is kind of the overall structure where we say this is the fund one, but maybe there's a fund two and three that also will invest in that space from that perspective. I think it would be good if you could mention some of those pockets, like what subsections of the blockchain space are you specifically interested in and, and why? Mm -hmm. So I think in the 
when we started, we had a little bit of a different differentiation, but the blockchain space itself is developing so quickly we had to adapt to that too. So I would say now we're, we're very, uh, very fixed on those buckets. And I would say there are four buckets generally. There's the first bucket, which is just infrastructure, the stuff that makes the, uh, the underlying that makes it work. This, that needs rescalability, that potentially at some point needs some sort of privacy, some sort of, uh, technology that actually makes it useful or usable or makes, let's developers develop something on top of that. Say that. The second bucket is what I would call myself an interface, which people call DeFi. So for me, money or some sort of monetary value is almost like the original digital object. And it kind of represents in a way a measurable relation between two parties. Uh, it's not the only relation between two parties, right? But it's, it, it makes one piece of that measurable if you have it. And so the way to interact with, with a blockchain and with the underlying infrastructure is usually through some sort of a token that has some sort of value and you have a, an economy of those values, which is a DeFi space. So you, you, it's really hard to, to communicate and interact with the blockchain as it is the public one without some sort of financial system on top of that. Then you have the third bucket, which is data interaction. So they're not only interacting through the financial part, those interacting with the data. People call it the NFTs. So I call it just a, a metadata blob that you use to in order to enable in order to interact with somebody. So for example, you, that's why you have IPs as NFTs, as our uh, one of our companies, Molecule has, for example, right? They they kind of tokenize in a way uh, IP as far as it, they can do it for now at least, and then they interact with that, right? Or we have another company called Nevermind that tries to kind of tokenize data sets or AI models, right? So the way you interact with that is through the NFT. The NFT has a subscription here, but it makes the interaction with the space possible, right? With the data that you actually want to use. And the fourth bucket is how do you govern all of that? Because this is very complicated and that's the whole DAO space. Uh, I think this is the one that's least developed. Um, it's also one that's very hard to actually understand what is needed there. If the first three are kind of very well understood in a, in a bit because there are uh, certain professions that are working in that space. Governance is usually on the level of the government, right? Or politics. So how do you, how do you build something that technologically that actually resembles some sort of politics? Um, and that next to the state, right? Not just, uh, just like a, a friendly interest group that actually watch that chat or something like that. It's really political sometimes. So this is kind of the fourth bucket. Great. Thanks for breaking that down. So, um, could you follow on with that kind of explaining? Okay. So, um, some criteria. So what investment stage, um, are you targeting any valuation limits? You know, what basically when, when you look at opportunities in these sectors, how do you figure out what is a fit for you? Um, on, uh, I guess a very, very boring quantitative sense, uh, because of course we'll talk about, uh, how do you select founders and, um, so forth. So on a formality side, I think, um, what is automatically derived from what Yuri said is that we have to work with teams that are probably just at the very beginning, um, of their project. Um, and this is also our sweet spot in terms of um, building and co-building the right DNA for um, sus uh, sustainable growth in the future. And um, that also implies that we are targeting um, rounds mostly that are uh, 
in the area of maximum 10 million um, valuation, ideally post money um, in euro. So really, really early in the project. Um, we have decided that this is also the right time for us to join um, the team basically as supporters because many of the DNA problems or issues are basically um, set in stone at, in that phase. For example, like bringing the wrong people on board, um, having bad agreements or messing up the cap table um, because of some... Um, yeah, let's say um, not very insightful distribution of shares. And this is exactly where we really want to support and can support the teams to to get that right, to basically not have um, a, a, a small uh, yeah, bunch of dynamite um, stacked up in, in the very fundament of their project. And I also think that during that time, it's one of the most exciting times for sure. Of course, the risk is the highest, the reward is the highest as well uh, for taking that risk. And you're really still in this builder phase where you have basically nothing and every day is super exciting. And you somehow, for some time, nearly start a project over from scratch if you have to pivot, for example. You have probably new insights that you can build upon, but you have to really start over and try again and try again. And I also think that we're very good in um, motivating during that stage because we really understand what that means. I mean, we have partly gone through such phases ourselves and are still going through some necessary pivots um, in the present and uh, will will go through them in the future. So um, we, I think we have uh, sympathy for that um, stage as well and patience. One of the things that stood out to us as we have gotten to know you better is how intimately you work together with the teams. And also that it seems like you're trying to build very much a curated portfolio where you have the capacity to super serve rather than to go very broad. Um, and relating to our personal investment preferences, for sure, early stage is exciting because you can still make a difference. Um, when the train is already moving, it becomes much more about supplying the fuel rather than working on the specific strategy uh, or making sure there's product market fit. Absolutely. I love the image of the fuel. Yeah, I think in the early stage, it's um, really you also have to bring other building blocks basically to build the engine <laughs> to basically get it um, in, in motion uh, in the first place. And um, these building blocks can be of different nature than just resources in terms of, of money. Um, and this is, I think, something that you, this is also a question of mindset because not everybody has the capacity um, to take that very deep dive with the teams and, for example, contribute also with uh, legal support, strategic support, and also other team building, hand-holding, um, cultural support probably. Um, we're also working with, for example, with an external coach um, and uh, to support the teams also in building um, a sound and healthy culture from the beginning on uh, to basically have the best possible engine to then um, go all the way. And this is something that 
Um, you can only do also with uh, the setup that we chose, I think, because if you have like a really, really large fund, you have to deploy more capital. You cannot join these very early rounds um, or you have to join many, many early rounds and you just simply do not have the time um, uh, to, to really yeah, basically sit with the teams for hours and days and put probably even months to start building the engine. So um, I would say it's just a different kind of investing. Both is necessary to really make the startup successful though. So it's just different stages. I wouldn't say that one is more important than the other. It's just a different way of working and in different stages. And we just, for us, um, prefer to, to be a part of um, this early team while I think what, what's necessary to add, also the team has to, um, yeah, to bring a certain pull to the table and to really want to work that way. Because there's like, um, you can't force yourself and you shouldn't force um, yourself upon a team. There are some teams that are very, very uh, well formed already because they probably have found it together in the past. Um, they don't need that much hand-holding with their setup potentially. So you shouldn't also just basically throw them in such, you know, um, standard program and then tick all the boxes. Okay, we support it here, we support it there, we support it anywhere. It's really about um, following their demand as well. And also, if you follow the demand, you really need to be pretty close to know what the potential demand is, right, to, to also bring value to the table. Great. So um, what does this uh, translate to for you guys in terms of um, participation structure? So um, we're seeing many deals become equity with a token warrant. Um, how, how are you guys thinking about that? And in terms of geography scope, uh, are you investing globally or are you focusing on Europe since you are uh, from Europe? So I think what derives directly from the way we work is that personal interconnection is very important. So I would say we do invest globally, but we have a focus on Europe because it's just closer to us, not culturally only, but also you can just reach uh, uh, somebody way faster than uh, in the US or somewhere in Asia. Now, this doesn't make it actually not global because most of the teams right now are actually remote. So the people are sitting all over the place or sometimes traveling. Some people that we know have spent three months in Berlin and then six months somewhere else and three months somewhere else again. So it really is about, can we have this kind of intimate work relation with the person? Because the person or one of the management team at least is always somewhere close or we always somewhere close because we also go, of course, to to US or to Asia sometimes. So this is kind of the, 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 the dynamic that is required. Right? But of course, in the beginning, just because you are in a certain city, you live somewhere else, you meet just people way more often. Probability is you're just investing way more often into the space you're closer with, which is Europe for us, right? Um, in that direction. I, I forgot the second question that you mentioned. <laughs> it was about the agreements, right? So the yeah, second... yeah. I'm 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 just just curious if you guys are really opinionated about doing it one or the other way because of your long-term view and getting involved early mm -hmm. stage. I mean, we have a clear opinion what um, we think is uh, a best-in-class setup. And we are mostly, at first, investing in equity, which is probably not like that common for uh, an investor in the space. 
So as we're an equity first investor, we usually um, start with a complete financing round, um, that meaning that we really have the full set of agreements for a proper equity finding, funding round, which is, uh, of course, a lot of work. And also there you can really um, make a change if, uh, if you're pragmatic and have great consultants keep the fees down and, um, and all, everything related to a, a swift uh, execution of such agreements. Um, we are absolutely willing to invest also in other structures. So we have had safe notes and sometimes there's a token warrant attached to it. This is like something that occurs eventually. But for us, as we're really um, also trying to set up a full round when we're investing um, in the first place to grant the companies also the funding that they need to then really refocus on building for a given time frame. At least in from our perspective, when the market was still up, we said like 18 to 24 months. We are now even sometimes going for more. So they just have the calm um, to be building with a full focus because what many forget is you can do a lot of, you know, convertibles and accumulate that and then race here and there and next month again and next quarter again. But a proper fundraising really takes month up to half a year and more. So um, if you're constantly in a fundraising mode and for most startups, it's not that it's just like reaching out and, you know, having a bunch of signed safes in their hand. For them, it's like really hard, especially in market downturns. Um, they are really spending a lot of time and energy to this. This can be very frustrating. And um, this is why we try to immediately set up a joint strategy to basically make sure that they are exposed to this not longer than needed and also support with the process so they can focus on their end as much as possible. And I, I actually like that the, the the space itself is starting to understand that just investing in a SAFT um, isn't the way to go if you want to do this this properly and have a good legal structure and have a uh, good foundation for the agreement between investor and, and the company. Um, so what it also, it might have implications for your LLPs. Um, often funds, uh, well, when I listen to, to podcasts, I, I hear that they tend to forget those LPs, but the LPs are very important uh, and that they understand what you're investing in. Like some some might expect more uh, from, from tokens and other, other ones just want to be a tech investor and want to go for that equity. So could you explain a little bit what the uh, expectations from these LPs are? and how you manage that. Mm -hmm. That's very well related to um, your uh, first question regarding the SAFT. I think it's something like our investors, they expect like the highest quality in everything we do and really investments also um, at the very edge of um, the space. So um, this combined is still very rare because I think if you ask around in the space, not many take the time to write up really long investment memorandums and really do long due diligences. And it would be like some are very contradictory 
if we would like spend all this time, you know, uh, gathering all this important information, getting to know the teams, building up a relationship, and then, you know, sign these for initial safe, uh, theft uh, drafts that were like circulating um, a couple of years ago very successfully uh, because the market was up, right? And everybody wanted to join and people didn't read the paperwork and they didn't understand it as well. And it just signed it off and had basically no rights at all. And then they turn around and they wonder why like the money's gone. So um, if you're operating on a professional level, um, it's in, from my perspective, and I'm of course a little bit biased on the legal edges because I'm still um, a lawyer somehow, um, it's I think very important to deliver this quality on all ends. And therefore it is absolutely necessary if you have like an LP circle that is um, very savvily investing in the space, not properly crypto savvy, but um, venture capital savvy or investment savvy and really expecting also to get the returns and to not, you know, aim for like a random risk. Like if the market goes up, I get my money back. If the market is not so well, I don't get anything. This is like what there's like this beautiful saying in German um, that uh, the flood lifts all boats, right? But that's random. I mean, you somehow... And um, I think that's the best answer that I can give to your question. Like the LPs are not expecting us to do exactly this or exactly that. They are expecting us to be full experts in everything we do, to explore everything we do and to take sound decisions. So basically, for example, the legal basis or also the technical assessment and also the write-up are all aspects. They are... Um, our LPs are very different, but they have one thing in common. Most of them are really whether great investors or great entrepreneurs themselves. So um, that's basically the standard that we have to serve. It's um, it's interesting hearing you say this because it makes me think of a conversation I had with a friend maybe two or three weeks ago. Uh, she runs a liquid token fund. And the lockup configuration is different than with venture. So, you know, in the downturn, of course, many more people are either reluctant to commit or they're more likely to pull back their capital. And I think with your, your venture structure, you'll likely have a, a lock-in and a, a preset expectation that this is going to be a long-term thing and you guys are investing in the early stage. And um, the same calm, therefore, that you're hopefully... Um, structuring around your teams, right? By making sure to get 18 to 26 months or whatever of uh, runway is also present for you guys to operate in that way. So um, that's great to hear that you found that investor base. Um, so maybe we should move on and talk about what you're looking for in, in the teams uh, that you're investing in. And you guys already built a portfolio, I think of about 10-ish companies. So um, maybe let's just start there. You know, let's leave that. I want to leave that question kind of open. So, um, yeah, people are pitching you. You are looking for things. What's that process like? And uh, what are the things you're looking for, you know, when, when you're choosing to pull the trigger or to dig deeper in the first place? Um, this is a, a very multidimensional uh, question. And I would say, like, Going through the different stages, probably starting uh, with like 
how you get um, the first contact. I think the first bias that you get, and you can't use any other word than bias, is how you are getting in touch in the first place. Um, there are many ways to reach out to uh, a venture capital fund. I think like already with the way you're approaching investors, you can really prove if you understand the game of venture capital and if you care working with those investors. So for example, if you get a warm intro about somebody um, that we really um, uh, um, yeah, I think is, is uh, of good standing in the space, it makes a total difference from if we get basically an application over the website that is then probably not even sustained with documents. Um, so this is probably like the first bias that you have to deal with. And this is also something that um, I think plays a big role. I, I'm mentioning the bias because this is something I think the first and um, most important hurdle for investors to make good choices. So um, the the most important role, if you're an early stage investor and you are leading with your decisions, not following other investors, but the startup may be, might be in touch with you without any other commitment so far. So you really have to take this decision from scratch because you cannot follow decision-making of another investor. You really have to know what you're looking for and why you're looking for it and why your um, view might not be objective at some to some um, extent. A typical example is that in statistics, you see that some um, groups of the population are just heavily underfunded, while the projects that they're building are not worse or even somehow better when they were te teaming up in a diverse team. So basically you have to fight yourself in the first place and then you can start initiating a real relationship with that person because you have to know the filter you're reviewing basically the persona and the team with. Um, and that is, I think, uh, and that is the, I'm, I'm highlighting that that much because I think that many times this is just simply forgotten. And uh, then when we're really starting to to building a relationship and talking for the first times um it's also about the chemistry so i really like the example that yuri gave with the org organism built made up of this individual cells i think with teams it's pretty the same right you have to see that functional teams can be individually made up very differently and can also be very distinctive from each other like really well-functioning teams and you have to develop a sense of this for this chemistry and really be ready also to get uh, somehow emotionally uh, psychologically involved and this is also why we feel it's very necessary to for example meet teams uh, physically so you get this kind of chemistry a great example for me was when we met in Paris for the first time. We Good got, times. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awesome. Like we entered your group and it was somehow there was this really common understanding. There was like um, a silent appreciation of being together mm -hmm. and a great kind of collaborative spirit. 
and you immediately grasp that when you entered basically the group and I mm -hmm. talked about it and um and this is basically I think most like most of the work in a very early phase go, goes into exploring exactly that mm. Uh, well, I, I love that you said that. It was a, a beautiful compliment. And I think we were very excited to see each other because this was the second ECC we did together. And we had eight members uh, in Paris. So that was a really good time. And um, I think it's a great luxury to be able to meet teams and collaborators so often in person. But the very global nature of crypto sometimes makes that it's not so, uh, right? Or it may not be affordable or um, accessible uh, to many. And uh, so it, it was a, a good time for us. And I think also having built primarily remote first businesses in the past, I think even if you can just do that with a minimum effective dose, you know, like see people once a year, twice a year, already that lays a groundwork for future remote communication where you've gotten a sense of each other's, what's the right word? You know, um, yeah, I guess energy. Um, right and you see how you interact with somebody and therefore it gives so much more context to their next response on uh, on chat without that context i i i like the compliment and we we definitely felt the same but we're also here from le, for like some juicy stories i think um like what what's the opposite of that like when you you basically don't feel that chemistry and maybe actually filter out a team quite quickly or maybe even a little bit later like sometimes there are much more subtle signs um, that you can see like in the first interaction uh, are any like red flags or any uh, behavior you, you actually don't want to see with a team I think I, I, I leave the subtleties to Julianne because she has my subtlety receptors are not as uh, well developed but um what you feel directly, one thing that's that's very becomes very clear, as Julian said, in the very, very first time you see a person is if you are a founder looking for money and you're treating uh, the product the person next to you as a person gives you the money, then that's just you feel directly, right? You're just not the person, you're just like some money giver. And the same way, obviously, if we treat somebody as like we want to give you money, right? This is the only thing we, we care about, it's also felt. So you feel this relationship very easily if somebody doesn't care about working with you, but cares about giving or receiving money. And I think this is a standard that you, it's, it's very hard to balance, right? Because, and if you're in a situation that you really, really need the money, you will have to kind of automate and standardize all the process. You need to like run around and talk to everyone the same way, right? In a five minute pitch just to get it. And so I understand sometimes this is a really good person, but he's in a situation that is just not possible to see. On the other hand, um, we receive a bunch of inbound pitch decks and a lot of uh, ideas that we just can't handle in a, let's say, a human, ma human manner. So we do have to standardize as well. And so we, we try to do it in a, in a very, very nice way. But still, there is, a, there is some auto, uh, auto, automation behind that. So there is a balance that you have to kind of figure out how to do that you still remain a human and you want to be actually... Uh, want to work with somebody really with this specific person or this specific entity or fund or company and on the other hand kind of manage the, the work that comes with it so i think this is kind of the basis what you what you don't want to see right those kind of behavior mm -hmm. you also don't want to see 
let's say bullshitting. I mean, this is especially for us very, very important as we have this kind of, I would say a rather good bullshit trader is when you try to sell something, but you're not able to specifically explain, you don't able to go deeper and you feel it directly because you avoid questions, avoid answers. Uh, maybe you are generalizing all the time. Maybe you are just picking some, some kind of information that is not consistent with some other information you just gave. So those kind of things, you, you pick it up, right? You pick it up because you think, oh, okay. And, and I had this really nice, um, I think somewhere, somewhere on the internet, I read a thing like, uh, which quote or something did you teach the most? And some person said, well, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that because I don't know the quote anymore. But um, he said basically is, if you read a newspaper about, the, about and you find the newspaper very good, um, and then you read the same newspaper about the topic that you actually know about, this is your, your way of checking if it's quality newspaper or not, right? So you kind of, you, you can't judge the news, the newspaper on the quality of it, but you're reading topics that you know nothing about because you, it will sound cool. But if you read it about topics you know something about, you can judge the quality of the journalism behind that. And this is kind of the, the, the approach here. You, you try to kind of move it in this way. So you can, in your territory, you can feel it actually wherever it goes. And I think the best people we ever talked to were those who were skeptical of their own thing. Sometimes they were truthfully skeptical of or knowledgeable as well of, of their own thing. And we thought, okay, we just don't know that. We just don't know that. We, we, we have a way of maybe finding it out, but we don't know that. Right. This is where it becomes more, more intense, more as a, as a human being. And I think this is also very important to us because sometimes people just have different ways of talking to each other and we're just these people, right? So somebody doesn't get like You don't get along with everybody. So it just might so happen that, well, you just don't get along in the same way. You don't have the same, I know, culture or fit or whatever you call it, I call it. So it's important to also not be personal in that, right? Not take it personal, not be personal in that, that you just didn't connect somehow. Right? And some people do. Some people really take it personal. And that's also one thing that you kind of reminds you of to say, okay, that was a good decision. So the, I think to, 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 um, take a short, um, um, yeah, excursion in the subtleties. And what I think what Yuri referred to with that, um, this is exactly what you often only see if you're really observing the person fully, meaning that, um, you basically soaking up everything that they do and say related even to their body language and, and the way they treat other people around them. They interact basically with the environment because, um, there's, it's very hard to keep up a authentic behavior if you're trying to, to be someone else, right? There's like very easily, um, in the perspective of the observer, you get this cognitive dissonance. And this is something you need to be very uh, sensitive to. If I, for example, observe a behavior where somebody acts like really politely in everything they say, and they do grand gestures, for example, and speak greatly about other people, and are very inviting verbally, and even probably with like, um, the open gestures, but then, for example, and this is a concrete, like what you said, like the messy story, um, but then block out their so-called co-founders 
with their full body, like basically blocking them when they're speaking and blocking them when they're like uh, trying to, to get connected themselves physically, that's somehow raising concerns if they are consistent in their appreciation, um, in their honest appreciation in, in, within their told story. So this is the best way I think I can describe it is to develop an overall feeling for the person, for the setup, and then really to basically look for any kind of um, of, of dissonance and basically authenticity breaker that you can find or looking for, I'm more an optimist person probably on that end. I'm really looking for the positive in the person and basically looking um, at the person like a treasure and right, trying to discover the full potential of the person and soaking the person up in a positive way because um, I believe that many people have like Especially if they're, for example, more on the tech, the techie side, they are often very introvert. They have difficulties to open up in the first place. So if I basically judge them by being like closed in their body language, doesn't have to do that they are not like very capable and uh, um, people, but and they are not ready also to communicate in a very good way. But it might be that they are intimidated because they have interacted, for example, with other people before that came from the financial industry have not good um have not had good experiences with them and basically need to reassess the situation and gain trust so um this is something also that is one of my biggest learnings i think on this job is really to also by the observations that we make to really encourage everybody who's working on the other side of the table to also dare to be more authentic and to admit if you don't know stuff you know if you're just like if you have a bad day and you're not in your top form to really also say you know I've traveled here I'm really really jet lagged I'm really tired today I'm sorry and not starting you know to try to hide that because this trust level is really creating the basis for a good and uh, honest communication and with some you will just not find that kind of wavelength um, and that's okay. As Yuri said, that's completely fine. This has, this is not a judgment about the capacity of the person. It's more like a judgment about whom we, who we are and whom we want to work with on the long term. That was, uh, really beautifully articulated. Um, I think especially too in the early stages, you, you even when you meet teams in person, you only get such a small glimpse. So then if you notice, well, they're not truthful, not authentic, the chemistry isn't great. Uh, th those are great flags to heed. Um, I think something we encountered over, let's say, a year or two now investing in blockchain is, especially when the markets were hotter, you know, terms for investors often were pretty egregious, like founders had a lot of leverage. But so I'm often the deal making party on, on our side. And one of the one of the things that I really feel quite strongly about is well if if somebody's not giving you um or if so, if somebody's not leaving something for you in in a deal you know then uh what kind of expectation can you have for the future like what what does that say about them and of course there's something to be said for fast moving deal premium came from a big incubator etc but it's a really fine line between exercising leverage as a founder for example or um 
taking advantage of somebody. And that also exists in blockchain, very much so. And I think it's one of our challenges as investors to kind of isolate when it is one or the other and to push back when when it's reasonable and also to be able to say we've had this too you know we've we've had really cool deals also slip by because we weren't willing to budge on let's say paperwork that effectively said well hey you have no rights um so yeah um lo love how you presented that and uh, i think we totally totally relate um so in light of time i think it is great for us to move on and talk about some of your views of the industry. Um, we noted a bunch of things that we wanted to cover, but uh, I'd love to start this off by uh, venting a little bit about the state of DeFi at the moment. Uh, we've recently had the Viper-related hacks, and luckily most of the funds were recovered, uh, but I think that eroded some trust in the blue chips. And then maybe the few things of financial plumbing that work are quite speculative sometimes, we think. Um, and we wanted to ask your point of view on that. Like, where do you think DeFi sits at the moment? And, and what are you optimistic about in that sector? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> the state of, so I have a kind of opinion of, of DeFi, which is summed up in a sentence that it's pretty much some sort of regulatory arbitrage at the moment. So either for good or for bad. So for the, for the bad ones, you basically can max out the returns. And that's what you do. You try to find a really good strategy, a really good way uh, to maximize returns without any con consideration for whoever is on the other side. And this person who might be on the other side is just some poor guy who's just trying to make a living somehow, right? Because it, there's a huge inflation in this country or whatever. So this is like when somebody said that DeFi has the worst pieces of the traditional finance in it. And I think on the worst side, this is true. On the good side, though, and you can see that necessarily in DeFi itself, I mean, it's there, but you can see it more clearly in the CeFi space, for example, with Binance P2P markets, that there are many, many countries, especially now, where people are living in under high pressure and high poverty or maybe in high inflation, and they want to make something out of the little money that they have. And they are usually what they would do, they would just exchange the money for dollars or euros, but they can't. There is a high barrier to actually get this type of money or actually get this type of, or any, any type of, uh, let's say, Western privileges in, when it comes to financials. And this is a glimpse into that, right? They are able to do that because there is something like Binance P2P where they can just buy UST. That's why you have, that's why UST is so, is so famous. You look at, uh, at Asia and there's almost entire Asia is using UST, whereas the Western part is using USDC. I mean, this is not a coincidence. Um, and these are actually the kind of, let's say the good part, right. And, uh, uh, of the, of the DeFi arbitrage or the, the, the regulatory arbitrage, because there are people actually trying to do something good here. Now it expresses itself obviously in a way that, that you build DeFi, um, without consideration for regulate, for regulations. Uh, you just build it in a, in a way to kind of maximize yield. A lot of products are using actually that replicating TradeFi. So you're trying to build the same financial instruments like options and so on, um, with even maybe higher leverage in, in centralized finance. So all of that is kind of not very, I would say not very innovative. So it doesn't leave much hope like, okay, how does it actually ever become something more mainstream? Now, where I see the hope and the opportunity is something different. 
for me, fundamentally, finance or is about the contract between two people. Even if I say, even I sell you something and you buy something from it, or even transfer your token or a currency, or right, it is about a contract between two people, although it's not necessarily written down. Right. So in order to make it digital, you have to digitize the contract. The fundamental piece of decentralized finance should be at the contract, not the asset. The asset is easy. You just invent something, just throw it over to the person. But the contract is the hard part. And so until you figure out the contract, I don't think DeFi will move too much ahead. Uh, it, in the innovation on finance, right? but on innovation on the technology, that's a different story. Um, but in order to solve the contract, you might need to solve the identity first. And that's where I see the opportunity because slowly, at least in Europe, they are moving towards digital identity and some sort of, I would say, decentralized or distributed identity, which I think will be the groundwork then for actually solving the problem of a digital contract. And from that on, everything else will fall into place. What DeFi can contribute a lot is actually on the way how you then make the communication happen and the transfer of funds happen, the transfer of contracts happen. Because now you have a huge sandbox. And this huge sandbox, you have a bunch of fantasy tokens. And you can just play around with them and see, okay, how much can I transfer to whom in what capacity under which security assumptions, right? Uh, how much encryption where does it, is needed? Where is it needed? All these kind of questions in relation to how does a network function with this new digital financial world, you can just play around and just uh, develop the innovation within the DeFi sandbox. And that's something I see clearly. So I think it will it will happen. It will not just, it, but it won't happen with DeFi eating Tradify. It will happen in a way where the government is saying in it because the identities and the contracts depend on the jurisdictions and the countries. And then with the technology, it will be supplied by DeFi. It leaves the question with me, like what your stance is on the spectrum from like privacy to full data traceability, because there are um, probably ways we can take where you end up with a digital entity where everything you have in value or in, in, in data, which of course can also be valuable, uh, can be tracked versus being totally private um, and actually being a little bit more secure for an individual. So what's your stance on that and how do you see uh, this balance between privacy and traceability? Yeah, that's a, that's also a very good question. It's a very tough one. I think we don't know the answer yet. Um, I think what is impossible is to have the full privacy that you might want because just because the state at some point will don't allow, uh, won't allow it. They, they need a way to trace uh, the funds and trace the money somehow, right? And especially in a globalized world where you can easily move around and do all kind of tax arbitrage, uh, this becomes clearer and clearer. Maybe at some point the countries come together and say, well, we have like one system for all, um, so you can't escape to offshores anymore. Who knows? But right now there is a way and a need to monitor actual things. And one thing that has become apparent, I want to talk to somebody from the decentralized identity space. He said, well, you know, the problem is, even if everything is private, now you have something like Russia that is sanctioned. How do you compare if some if a, if a flow of money is sanctioned or not? Like, is it going to a sanctioned party or not? 
right? It's really hard to do that if everything is private. So in these circumstances, it's encryption is key, right? And especially the innovation encryption by zero knowledge proofs. So the proof part of that is also key to keep the privacy while we are able to prove something really. But there are limits to that, I believe, because the government just won't accept a certain, about a certain threshold, I believe. Now, can you come to this threshold in a smooth way, let's say? I'm not sure. It seems, it almost sounds like a generational conflict to me sometimes when I talk about it with people, because people are just so used to a certain way of dealing with things. They want and need somebody to actually ask, like, something goes wrong. I want somebody to be accountable. I want to go to this person and be accountable and make him accountable for something. And, and those kind of understanding of those, let's say, old processes, um, stands in the way of implementing actual privacy tools into it. It also makes very problematic because people don't understand what privacy really is. Like, you know it by people using Facebook. It, you don't, if you don't feel it, you don't understand it, right? It doesn't, it doesn't leave a mark on you. And this, this is kind of the, the human way of, of thinking. It, or you can only grasp it if you, and if you kind of to a certain degree feel it. And privacy is not felt. That's yeah, Yuri, like it erodes so gradually that people are okay with it, I think. And it's only when they really were to aggressively feel that they're lacking it, that they would be aware of it. Because you're constantly trading it away, right? You're not even noticing. And at, at this point, like all your data is with this app creator and that app creator and that advertising network. Yeah, this, this, this is terrible, right? And I think about myself, how would I solve that? But I can't as well. I don't feel it either. The only way I can do it is logically reason about that and then say, well, okay, then I don't use Facebook anymore, right? I don't have an account. But can you discipline yourself in using it in such a way that you are kind of tr trying to not dox other people, right? but also be more privacy-centric yourself? It's really hard because the capacity of energy that you need throughout your day, your everyday life is so much. Right? So you can't, you can't just do that through discipline as well. Um, so this becomes a real big problem. And unless you feel the, the, the problems of that, which, I mean, you read about those kids and the people who are being uh, bullied online, but no, it's not me, right? And I don't know anyone, so you just don't care. And if it's just a minority only, it's easy to lose track of that too. So uh, it's it's really hard to kind of make an argument, like a big argument for that, where people say, yes, this is the number one priority, not like a number 10 priority, but number one priority. And um, yeah, this is just a, a tough one. I, I think this this is something where we need more ways of showing what privacy, what, what things do to you because they're not private. I, mm -hmm. I think there was like this one, this one episode of John Oliver when he was walking around and said, do you want Facebook to have your dick picture? <laughs> like this, you can see your dick. And people react directly because they understand the sexual part of that too, right? If you say like, they know everything about you, the person will say, well, yeah, no problem. They say, yeah, but I saw your dick. <laughs> and he was like, whoa, what, really? <laughs> There's a great episode on John Oliver about that, how he tries to visualize this kind of problem. Of right, 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 yeah. And, and what's provocative enough? And that's, I think, that's, a, that's an interesting thought experiment. Um, because I see some parallels to climate change, right? You know, you 
don't necessarily see how much CO2 you are emitting or contributing uh, to um, in the atmosphere. And you can like see a quick change in the climate, right? So of course, gradually you, you get like, uh, if you ask people uh, in some parts of the world, they see it because their roads are underwater already. But then um, largely you can't really feel it immediately. It's something that happens so slowly, but like the campaigning brought it to a permanent attention of everybody. And the interesting change that we saw is like, and this is what you said here is a great example of that, that over the last year, suddenly I was standing at the airport, for example, and there was a campaign for privacy or there's like at the bus stop, there was like an ad for a privacy phone. Um, so potentially people will understand more and more what that means also if they see that there's a direct impact on their lives. And I think still, sadly, it's a very optimistic view on the world. I think that regulation and fining can contribute to that as well. For example, I got contacted by lawyers that are now basically screening your email addresses recently and seeing if you were involved in some kind of hack. So in Europe, you can now officially claim uh, basically damages for um, leaking your data. So that was very interesting because um, this like is um, a, a jurisdiction that probably helps also to raise the awareness that it's a breach of your privacy and that it is actually damaging you, right? Before it was like unfortunate, right? Now it is officially damaged. So all these like kind of um, motions that you can slowly see on the regulatory side and a societal side probably contribute to a higher awareness still i'm a little bit pessimistic that people really know what it means until they see somebody sitting at a screen and listening to their phone calls and going through their pictures and basically seeing curves of their heart rates and then saying ah this person is healthy or is not healthy yeah, we could push that ad or do whatever with it they are not visualizing it and therefore they still don't care enough for sure. This this will be an ever important discussion to have in the space and also with founders, like how they think about this topic, how they basically use the data from their users and, and what decisions they want to make on that, whether it's automated or business decisions. Um, so let's keep having that conversation. I did not expect one answer. Uh, because it's it's always that that finding that balance between these uh, extremes of full um, full data availability and full privacy. You, you can't work with with either of those if they are too extreme. So um, uh, good good conversation, and I think we we can keep this conversation going for much longer. But we uh, we're going to wrap up the episode, and then on the topic of like public data, uh, we're wondering like where can listeners find you, and I think especially founders or people who are interested in your portfolio companies, how can they find more, uh, find out more about that? Just go to www.signatureventures.com. <laughs> That's probably the most common answer. Or um, preferably, of course, also talk to us. We're at um, some of the um, very known crypto events, of course, 
and uh, we prefer also have a chat with you in person. Um, contact us um, um, through warm intros. If you're a founder, if you know somebody that's already working with us, that's, of course, a great way to also get on the top of the inbox. Uh, great. So thank you guys for coming on. Um, we had a long agenda, but did not get through everything. So that's a great excuse to have you back. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, we'll put notes in the show notes for links to your website and so forth. Uh, over and out. Thank you for listening in. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thanks for tuning in to the Deus Ex Dao podcast, a place where some of the most progressive and innovative builders, thought leaders, and traders in the crypto space come together to discuss all areas of the crypto industry. Whether you're into DeFi, Layer 1s, Layer 2s, NFTs, or anything in between, we've got you covered. And as a reminder, Nothing said on this podcast should be construed as financial advice or as a solicitation to buy or sell any digital asset or security. The comments, views, and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests on the podcast are their own. As always, you'll need to do your own research.